Welcome to the podcast. This is Paul Tizard, Fear of Flying Coach, 25 years. And today's podcast is probably called something like all those questions you'd like to ask a captain, but you were afraid to do so. And today I'm joined by Captain Steve and Michael Tolone. Is it Tolone? Is it an Italian? Tolone. Well, you could say Tolone. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I'm, Michael's got a huge list. And you, for those who heard Michael on the podcast the other day, you know that he's fighting his fear of flying at the moment. So we thought what a great thing to do would be to actually get get these two together, ask all those questions, and then uh, we'll see, see how you feel at the end. So I'm going to shut up and hand over to you. Michael, what's your first question? Well, I'm I'm very happy to be uh, speaking with Captain Steve today. My Likewise. first question, my first question is: If you do see a nervous flyer, do you? Is it okay for them to come in and speak to you and ask you a couple of questions before the flight actually happens? Absolutely, Michael. In fact, we positively encourage it. And it's happening more and more now because obviously the restrictions are obviously you have to obviously see us on the ground before or, or even after the, the flight. But actually just recently on my, on my last flight, it was a young girl, actually. She, uh, she could have only been six or seven and it was already uh, sadly um, scared of, you know, the, the thought of what was going to happen on the flight. So her mother brought her in before the, uh, you know, the flight before Dago. Yeah, we let her sit in the seat, which was, you know, just let her you know, touch the controls and just look out the window, which was, uh, but absolutely any time. And, and we positively encourage you to ask the crew as well uh, when you board the aeroplane, because they, they will bring you up uh, to the front. And it's always good to, knowledge is power, as you know. So, Definitely. Yeah. I, I yeah. also feel that uh, I, knowing that I am a nervous flyer, I am a little bit skittish I, you know you don't want to bother anybody so oh, I know. you're a little you know you don't you don't want to even say anything you just want to keep it to yourself but what i found is that if you do say if the people know then maybe it does make you uh calm down and feel a little bit better oh no for sure that uh, a problem shared a problem halved you know that, that kind of thing but uh, no for sure yeah yeah no definitely and I've been watching some videos and getting trying to get a feel for what you know you guys do in there to, you know, to give myself more knowledge. I'm a very technical person, so I oh, like cool. to know what's what's actually happening. And to watching some of the videos, how after you take off, how 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 long are you as the pilot actually flying before it goes on to autopilot? You, you can choose actually. You might, yeah, one of one of those things that we. We love to manually fly it. Um, it keeps obviously our our motor memory skills, you know, current as it were. Yeah, they're always obviously embedded in you after, well, in my case, thirty two years of it. But um, you know, they're always there. But of course, at certain periods, it, it depends. You know, five ten minutes after after takeoff, maybe not even as long as that. We'll engage one of the autopilots simply because it starts to, you know, get busy and. Between the two of you, you're managing, navigating, speaking with air traffic control and obviously operating the airway. So it makes sense then to put the autopilot in and then it gives you that much more capacity to, to uh, you know, for the operation in front of you. Also, one of the other things, um, obviously, 
after takeoff and we clean the aeroplane up, you know, we bring in the flaps and we start accelerating. Once we're flying really far, you know, like I'm talking four or 500 miles an hour, you know, we can't actually fly at that speed as accurately or as smoothly as, as a, an autopilot because the autopilot's putting in minute thing for, you know, for it to literally just fly like, you know, like a, as flat as a, as a, a mill pond. And yeah, so we would never be able to actually put that smooth amount of controls in at that speed because one slight correction, obviously, then you have to correct it again. So, yeah, so an autopilot is, is our friend once uh, once we do that. And coming into land, it's, it's the same. You can you can literally disconnect the autopilot whenever you want. I mean, again, you know, if it's, it's, if it's a busy road, especially going to New York, one right. of the busiest airports, and then you, you would keep the autopilot in for, for probably – you know, at least until you were on final approach, which would be, you know, you'd, you'd fly the last five minutes manually. So so as you're descending, that's actually the autopilot that's descending? Yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah, wow. yeah. We're, we're still, we're flying the aeroplane through the autopilot, which has many functions, um, obviously, laterally and vertically. But um, so we put the inputs into the autopilot, you know, so if air traffic control say, descend to 10,000 feet and we're at 30, you know, we'll dial in that altitude and of course it will take us to 10,000 feet and whatever speed air traffic control say, whatever heading they want us to fly. So we'll do that through the autopilot, you know. Right. Yeah. So over the uh, course of me gaining knowledge about the airplane, one of the things I did not know is that when the, uh, if, if the engines were to cut out which would probably be probably pretty rare but if you lost both engines i did not know that the plane could glide basically i I believed that it fell out of the sky yeah so right there (laughs) yeah exactly so why why i felt better on this flight was and i explained this to paul as well as you're climbing is it actually I feel it's actually safer now because you have more time to react. Is that actually the case? The higher you are because it can glide a further distance, are you actually safer when you're cruising? <laughs> well, you're safe at all times, but I, okay. I, I get the meaning of your question, i.e. if the remote chance of both engines failing, which um, you probably, I don't know if you uh, had made the, the, the part of the course where I said the... Um, now the chances of that happening nowadays, they say you play the lottery on a on a Saturday night and you win it. Yeah. And the following Saturday you play the lottery again with exactly the same numbers and you win it again. So whatever the you know, ten to the power of ten or whatever those chances. So anyway, that's the first thing. So they're not gonna but I get your question in that absolutely if you were at high altitude, thirty seven thousand feet, and you lost both engines, you would glide two hundred miles. So yeah, from where you are in uh, New York, if you were at that altitude, you would, uh, I don't know, where would you get to? Uh, probably uh, South North- Jersey. Yeah, South, South <laughs> yeah. Jersey. <laughs> That'd be pretty cool. That'd be pretty cool. Now, the, one of the biggest fears I have coming over to Europe is, is the water. Okay. And, and, and the fact that w- what if something does happen when you're over the water? I know it's remote, but what if something does happen? Where is the last sort of checkpoint of land that you could actually land you know the plane i mean obviously if there's an emergency we you need to get somewhere what happens when you get past is that greenland would be the last 
Well, actually, before, so um, if you consider a brilliant example from, from your place in New York. So as we fly along the eastern seaboard, we're then going up, uh, you know, obviously northern, the northern states. And then once we leave Bangham, Bangham Maine, and we fly into, where are we, Halifax, Nova Scotia, then it's Gander, and then the Labrador coast. So that's, the, that's our sort of last landfall on the, uh, on the, um, the US-Canadian side. And then from there, the stretch of water is exactly, as you say, Greenland. And then from Greenland, it's to Iceland, and then Iceland to Scotland or the United Kingdom. If you were to come further south, I'll come on to that in a minute, when, when we can do that, we can actually leave the coast of Canada behind and fly a southerly route, and we'd go towards the Azores. And obviously, we'd be that much further away from Greenland and Iceland, but the Azores would be our first point of uh, of landfall, and then so the Azores. The, so when you're actually traveling to England from New York, saying you're taking a northern route, Look yeah. at me with the pilot. Look at me with the technical. I'm learning the maps already. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what What is the longest stretch of the flight where you would be over the water? Uh, okay. Before you, you know, when you leave land and get back to land. Sure. So it's actually all based on the certification of the engines. And uh, so, as you've probably been reading now, the four engine aeroplanes of, of the world are, are literally, to, well, there'll never be another four engine aeroplane built because of the reliability now and the savings in fuel, uh, et cetera. So most aeroplanes now are twin engine aeroplanes and we can still fly to all the remote areas of the world, but we have to stay within the certain limits. And that at the present time is three hours um, certified on one engine. So what that means is we can fly the furthest point away from land for in a three, if you put an arc, you know, a, a circle, as long as we stay within three hours of an airfield, which takes into account of losing one engine, then we're legal to, to fly. So hence why we sometimes, so from New York to England, we, we the in the Northern Hemisphere, the jet streams go from west to east. So we look for tailwinds, hence why the flight is always shorter to the UK from America rather than for us going to you. So we look for tailwinds. So if the tailwinds are very far south, i.e. towards the Azores, we will actually go and take those. But as long as we stay within three hours of an airfield. To give you an example then, so if we left the coast of, say, Gander behind, we can actually fly directly from Gander to the Azores, and that's within both airfields overlapped by 180 minutes, which is, which is three hours of that. That makes sense. It's hard to show you without a map. Yeah, but generally, because of the way winds and weather is, we we rarely go to the limit of, of actually 180. Most of the time when we're flying the routes we do from, from America to the United Kingdom, we're probably about two hours away from, from most airfields. So Gander to Greenland is about roughly two hours flying, and Greenland to Iceland is about an hour and a half. Um, so that sort of you know distance. The actual Atlantic crossing is actually only about four hours of flight. So, Oh, is it? Yeah, that's not, yeah, that's yeah. that's we're, we're over land from from New York. We we generally fly, you know, we hug the eastern seaboard coast all the way to literally, you know, the last port of call at, uh, over Canada. If you went straight across, though, would it be shorter? Obviously, it would be right. I mean, how much shorter would it be, though? Uh, no, not generally. It's it's a strange thing. You know, it's a, so we fly great circles. But although, the, you know, you look at this, um, the the earth is round and there's a big globe but when you draw the line on obviously on a flat surface it looks as though 
we're going direct. We're, not, we're actually going up over like right. on great circles. So the shortest distance actually is is where the winds are. So so that's why we, we follow, even if it was actually distance-wise longer, we'd actually go looking for the tailwinds to make the flight time shorter. I got you, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this is all, this is, these are all the things I'm thinking of. You know, I'm the one of the passengers that is, that's in the back that, w- that want to come into the cockpit and help you fly, you know? Yeah, I know. Do, do you know what? Yeah. Long time ago, before before nine eleven, that's exactly what we used to do. And you know, every airline had a, an open flight door policy. And and I remember years ago, the people that you know had a fear of flying, we used to invite them up uh, in the cruise, and they they couldn't believe you know how one how relaxed it was. And if they were really interested, like yourself, and wanted to obviously fly the aeroplane for you, you would actually invite them in for landing, which would be just you know that level would take them to you know, literally watching what's going on. And then, of course, they understood the whole process of, of actually, one, how relaxed it is, and two, you know, what we do between both pilots that are flying the aeroplane, how we back up everything, you know, every time we move a switch, we back it up with a checklist, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, yeah. So I actually watched a couple of the videos. I watched the frozen chickens into the engines. Oh, you did? Oh, I cool. watched that one. Yes, I did. <laughs> it's bizarre, and- isn't it? <laughs> It, it's yeah, but it also makes you say, "Hey, you know that this is uh, you know it, it, they test and test and test." Yeah. So it's definitely yeah. uh, reassuring. But I also watched it was a about thirty minute video of an actual takeoff taxi, the checklist, and a takeoff. And cool. to to your point, you know, if I was sitting in the cockpit with you, it would give you such a relaxed feeling because you see these two people working together. With all of the checklists, we're going to take the one of the most interesting things to me was the actual route leaving the the airport. Like they had an iPad there, and oh yeah, they were yeah. discussing which way to go. It, it's amazing, and to to be able to see that you know on video. But if I if you were able to see it live, it would totally relax somewhat someone to to see how calm you guys are now, and how professional and you know. It's just amazing to see you guys doing all of that together with all of these different gauges in front of you and everything that's going on. It's it's really it's it's uh, it's it's amazing. Well, thank God for the internet. You know, there's uh, we we all know there's some drawbacks. And one of the positive things in in this case is you know people get to to see videos now of that you know years ago you you just be able to talk about it. But yeah, it's it's fantastic and and also it will also demonstrate if you appreciate it, that, so that means we can fly with anyone because we have our standard operating procedures. Each airline is, is different, but we fly the, the checklist and everything are made by the, you know, the, the airplanes made by the manufacturer. So they give you a guidelines of what switches to move. So when we have all our checklists, it, because we operate to the same standard, it means you can literally just, you know, you fly with someone you've never met before and it works exactly the same. It just, it works like clockwork basically. Um, so that the, actually happens. You'll actually fly with a captain that you or a pilot you've never flown with before. Yeah, abso- absolutely. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It's it's pretty cool. And uh, obviously, once you're up at cruising, you can learn about each other and uh, what what makes them tick and all about their lifestyle and stuff. And yeah, it's 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 quite quite bizarre. It happen, happens a lot, especially um, the bigger the airline you're in. I mean, goodness, I mean Delta have what. Is that a thousand airplanes? I don't even know. Ten thousand pilots. You know, you can imagine. You know how uh, little and often they they must meet the same people. So. 
Well, yeah, this yeah. is true if you think about the pool of yeah. pilots. Yeah. yeah. Do you have a particular aircraft that you do like to fly? Yes, yeah. So we're only rated on one airplane at a time, again, for, for safety. So if you were to change types, so if you, you move from one commercial airplane to another, the whole process of doing the ground school and the technical knowledge, doing the simulator training to going on the line to, to train with a training captain before you get released by yourself is probably about five to six months. It takes a long time to, to learn an airplane because it's just repetition, you know, it's just repetition after repetition. So I've only ever flown, uh, commercially, I've only ever flown Boeing airplanes. So I know nothing about Airbuses. It's a different philosophy between the two manufacturers. So I started flying a Boeing 737 and then I flew the Boeing 747 for 17 years, the jumbo. And then I've been on the Dreamliner, the, the Boeing 787 for the last eight years. And this is so far my favorite airplane. I never thought I'd say that over the, the jumbo jet because that was a bit of a boy in short pants dream, you know, just wanting to fly the, at the time, the biggest airplane. But this 787, the Dreamliner to me is just, yeah, it's uh, the technology and the comfort of the airplane and, and just the, the, the systems now they have as backup, the redundancies, you know, it just gets better and better and better. And um, and again, a twin engine airplane going to the same corners of the world that the four engine airplanes used to go to just tells you how advanced the technology is now. Is there a technology that uh, in the 32 years you've been flying, is there a technology that was completely not there at all when you started flying that is there now? Yeah, that, definitely. And I didn't think I'd ever see that in my, in my lifetime. So when I started the first type of 737 I flew, it was a 300 series and it was completely round. We call it a round dial cockpit. And it's the, one of the old fashioned, not, there wasn't one TV screen in there. You know, you see all these fancy big uh, TV screens now yeah. and moving maps. So we didn't even, you know, you, you had to literally constantly update your head where you were geographically in, in the, uh, you know, and before the iPads, of course, we had, huge charts and we used to fly along with charts this big you know following literally where we are we used to take how do you know where you are so we had obviously instruments saying you're this far from a navigational beacon etc etc north south east west so it was purely done on instruments and that's the way i learned to fly and um, and then all of a sudden one day you know the technology of a, this big fancy moving map like your sat nav in your car and you just go <laughs> this is great. I can actually see where I am in relation to the Earth now, you know, rather than you know having to constantly update yourself with a with a chart. Um, so now your situational awareness gets constantly updated by a moving map display. It's it's fantastic. We also now know where other aeroplanes are as well. So when I first started, obviously there was no information to to tell you where other aeroplanes were in the sky as well. We didn't have a thing called traffic collision avoidance system when I first started either. It was it was mandatory as years went on. But when I first started in 1990, um, this traffic collision avoidance system was, uh, if there was ever a breakdown in air traffic control, it would tell you to climb or descend. And that was something that was introduced, you know, in the early years of my flying, which was, again, just mind-blowing, yeah. Wait, so that that the uh, instrument that tells you where you are in relation to other airplanes, mm. uh, if you saw something on there and say uh, air traffic control, uh, are they watching you that whole way too? Like yes, I know they, they hand they hand you off as you go, right? That's but exactly. Yeah. Say yeah. say you saw something that you did not like. 
Would you be able to make that? Obviously, you would be, I guess. Would you be able to make the decision to say, hey, I want to do this because I don't like what I'm seeing? Absolutely. Well, first of all, you would tell air traffic if, if for some bizarre reason it wasn't right. on their radar, but it's on ours. You would make a transmission on the radio to say um, we've got traffic at one o'clock, you know, 10 miles or something. And generally, they would then be aware of it if they, if they weren't already. And, and secondly, then our computer would obviously interrogate that other airplane, the traffic collision avoidance system, it's called TCAS. Uh, it would interrogate that airplane's um, uh, transponder. That, that The transponder is the bit that puts the blip on the air traffic controls radar. And our airplane would actually subsequently tell us what to do, whether to climb or descend. Or but in answer to your question, yes, you could actually manually do it yourself if you were visual, because of course, a lot of the time, you know, with mother nature, we're in cloud. And luckily that's, the beauty of the technology is um, the TCAS system. It doesn't matter what the weather is for, for that. It will always interrogate other airplanes. So, so yeah. back, back before that, you would actually have to rely on your eyes or the air traffic controllers, right? Exactly. Yeah. The guinea pigs that went before me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. See that. <laughs> that's yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, I know. You can imagine years ago, um, it, it's kind of bizarre good, that there would have been, you know, I'm talking about the 50s and 60s, but there would be a lot less obviously traffic in the sky, but the technology right. was that much, you know, so you can imagine that, uh, you know, we're very lucky with the, the onset of technology. That, that actually did happen to me. We were coming back from a trip out West and we were flying into JFK and mm -hmm. this was in the eighties. And this was, uh, this was probably the, it might've been the, the, the first flight I was really, really nervous on. So okay. the first, first two flights weren't that bad. You know, I, my family didn't travel that frequently, but the third flight I was on, I, I remember getting on the airplane and just being absolutely terrified the minute I got on the plane. We were, we were still on the ground. Okay. So anyway, it was about a four-hour flight. We were in New Mexico, and we were uh, heading back to New York, and I would, my mom was sitting next to me, and I tapped her, and I said, I'm looking out the window, you know, because I'm scanning the horizon to make sure we're safe. Yeah. <laughs> and um, we, uh, I see a plane way out in the distance. And I said, I said, that's going to be trouble. I said, they, they, <laughs> it looks like it's going to be trouble. And it was getting closer and closer and closer. And we were on final approach. To, you know, we were landing. And boom, we took right off again. Did you really? Wow. Yeah, we took right off again. And we did the yeah, circle yeah. around. And it, it so happened that they put us on the same runway. That's amazing. And wow. uh, so that was one of the one. You know, that that was something that, but they caught it. You know what I mean? Yeah, and that's sure. Back, back then. And I'm sure the air traffic controllers have gotten, gotten a lot better now, too. The You know, the, the training and and all of those other things, too, right? The human error part of it, right? Absolutely. And uh, with with pilots, air traffic controllers and engineering, everything is, um, yeah, the bar has been raised, as it were, uh, as technology gets better. And uh, yes, yeah, standards have to be raised all the time. And, you know, I, I, I've been to some of the air traffic control centers, uh, which you get invited to as you develop through your career. You know, you, you're lucky you get once or twice in your career, get invited to one of the major air traffic control centers. And it's absolutely fascinating. I, mean, I take my hat off to the, you know, they just, you know, they're playing a game of snakes and ladders or whatever, and they just, you know, and that's why they have to take breaks um, very frequently because it's very intense and uh, they have, um, it's limited to a certain number of aeroplanes. So on that screen, before they pass you over there, there's a certain number that they're allowed to obviously control at one time. 
and then it will be passed to another area, of course. But it's just, I take my hat off to them. It's an incredible job, um, as as I do to engineers, you know, because they, they keep the aeroplanes in, in the sky as well, which is, it's just amazing, you know, what's available now. I wouldn't um, mind buying those people a gift every time I get them. Uh, well, likewise, it's a cup of it, coffee it, or something. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Yeah. Have you ever flown? Have you ever flown with someone and and kind of like gave them like the little eyes? Like, have you ever flown with someone and like, how does this guy a pilot or this <laughs> pilot? <laughs> have you ever had that before? <laughs> I'm sure you haven't because it sounds like it's pretty intense training, and and I I think you'd have to be pretty uh, capable mentally and and have a pretty high intelligence to get through it. But have you ever had that moment where you're like, wow? I mean. <laughs> said something or <laughs> let me have control yeah yeah um it's generally you you hit the nail on the head generally when they well generally it's the case when you get because i fly commercially to an airline is to, to get to a standard of, of of airline flying you will have had to gone through a lot of flying experience already so to actually get into an airline that you know they've already got that that experience that allows them to operate commercial airplanes but so not as scary as what you say, but have I seen different levels of ability? It's probably uh, it, it is a is a better way of putting. It. And it is it is sad that I mean over my career of thirty two years, I've probably seen maybe half a dozen people that have actually just for whatever reason got to a certain stage in their life that for some reason that you know they're everything the hand eye coordination the, the mental capacity you know is suddenly let go as it were. And they've had to stand down, you know, they start to fail checks or they start to, you know, really um, operate below the standards required. You know, they do get, without doubt, you don't just get a, an axe and you're, you're chopped from your, your career. You, you get retrained, you know, you get put through, a, you know, another assessment. And sometimes, you know, they they get better and they get out of it. Sometimes then they slip back into to that and then whatever the retraining doesn't, doesn't help them. And it's, it's just something that, you know, just happens really. Hence, why the retirement ages were, were really quite. The retirement ages were really quite low in the early days. So when I started flying, retirement age was fifty-five. For, was that you know, mandatory? Before. It used to be, okay. and then it was raised to sixty. Now it's sixty-five. Uh, and in the states, I believe you can fly uh, longer. I think as long as your medical is all intact. But again, you still have to pass all the checks every six months. And the medical, obviously, the older you get, is the one that everyone has the biggest challenge for us, the medical. Yeah, as long as you're fit to fly, you, you can you can carry on. How but intense is that medical? Like, what are they, they check cognitive, everything? Like, how yeah, intense every, is that medical? Yeah, everything now, yeah. Yeah, from your lungs, your heart, your eyes, your, your blood, you know, it just, it just goes on and on. And uh, obviously there's a certain amount you can control, obviously try and stay healthy and stuff, but there's certain things that just give way naturally as, as we get older. And uh, I think that's one of the... Uh, yeah, it's, it's just one of those things you, you face. And, I, and if I think back, it, it becomes harder for the the people over, without doubt, over 60. But that wouldn't just be in our profession. It would be most professions, I think. So um, that's, it's refreshing. You know, once, anytime over 55, you can look at your own retirement because that's when you can access your pension. So um, it's up to most people if they, I've always said it as well. And I know, you know, a lot of my friends I started with, we've always said, if I start to feel that I'm operating below standard, I would just, I would actually put my hands up and go, I'm out of here. Thanks very much. You know, rather right. than actually go through the horror of saying you're no longer performing to the standard you, mm -hmm. <laughs> you should be and, and get axed. <laughs> you don't, you don't want to get, you don't want to get walked out 
No, no, exactly. <laughs> you want to leave. You want to leave on your own. You don't exactly. want to get that walk out. Yeah, yeah. Show That's, the door. Yeah, I mean, and yeah. and the the fact that the the longer you're there, the better it is because you have so much experience, and then you know to have to train the newer people to come in. That, that's, that's you know that's right. that's yeah. like but most mo most of the pilots are a lot of them are military right a lot of people come from the military yeah it's about um in the it's about 50 percent approximately maybe maybe less now because our um air force is getting smaller and smaller in the united kingdom so there's not as many people but when i first started i would say about 40 percent 50 percent were military guys and the others straight from a a commercial background. So I, re I remember hearing on one of the podcasts that it is quite expensive to to get trained to be a pilot. Like if I want to all of a sudden today, because I spoke to you, I want to go now be a commercial airline pilot. Yeah. It'd be pretty expensive. It, it is. Yeah. You'd save some money if you did in the States. You'd be pleased to hear. So. <laughs> but, the, but the thing is, so if if you aren't a military person and the airline is going to, what, what would the, if I went into say, interview with an airline I, I don't even know how you would get in there but what are yeah. they looking for because I, I heard you guys say that they would sponsor someone and they would actually pay for the training what someone what would the airline be looking for in someone that they would actually take a chance on someone to to pay for their training yeah no you're actually right it's taking a chance so the the assessments are yeah, pretty um, intense uh, I myself was extremely lucky uh, when I was 21 I, I got um, sponsored by an airline to do exactly that. So, and that was my, gosh, my fourth or fifth attempt to, to try and get into the, the aviation schools. So yeah, you go through a series of aptitude tests, which involves hand-eye, foot coordination, and a series of rapid fire, just, you know, nothing really strenuous on the boat, but really rapid fire, mental written tests, just quick fire mathematics or something. Um, a little bit about aviation yeah it's good to know some knowledge you know because they'll put an aircraft instrument in front of you and say are you you know are you turning left are you turning right you know that kind of thing so people going along for those examinations would definitely have some sort of desire to to fly so they would obviously already have studied that kind of thing did you have but your license already at that point no but i'd done private flying so i i had a uh, a private pilot's license so I'd, okay. I'd done my 30 hours at a local flying school and you get to go solo after 10 hours and then you increase your, your hours and it just allows you to fly around the countryside purely in visual conditions you know always clear blue skies and stuff you, you can't fly in cloud and things like that you you have to then obtain an instrument rating which is a lot further involved more flying etc but then it gets really expensive so as you probably heard on that last podcast we did with Paul. So nowadays in the UK, if I was to just literally, as you say, I want to embark on a course and get my commercial pilot's license, I'd probably have to ask a bank for £120,000 or that's about $180,000. Yeah, it's it's huge. So you've got that obviously like a mortgage, you know, you're taking on a, a huge loan. So now because the source from the Air Force is really drying up, the only way through now probably will in the in the future will be about 30 percent will be self-funded like that the other sort of 50 percent will be sponsored pilots because the airlines like to invest in youngsters you know 21 and then they'll get 30 something years service from them so you more than pay back your training if you know what i mean right you know probably as little as 20 percent will come from the military in the future but i thought 
How long is the process to to become a commercial airline pilot? How long is that that whole process? Yeah, sure. So the course itself is, um, if you go on a, a fully recognized course at a, at a training school, will be sort of nonstop for 18 months. If you were to do it on your own, you know, just flying it at weekends and stuff at a flying club, now obviously would take you probably a, a few years to do. But if you do a structured course, it's about 18 months. And then you would obviously go to, you know, start writing to airlines and try and get your first job. That's the biggest challenge. If you're not sponsored, because obviously you're sponsored by an airline, you'll go on to their first aeroplane, whichever one they want you to fly. Generally, obviously, it's the smaller ones. You start on short haul, you know, gaining lots and lots of takeoffs and landings and experience. But if you came out of a flight or say if you wanted to do it next week and, you know, you come out with a, a shiny new license and then you've got to then go and convince a, an airline to take you on as a as a young, fresh pilot, you know, with very little experience. But they do, you know, because they'll look at, oh, you you, you went to a certain, certain school and that, that's got a good reputation and, yeah, we're willing to, to take you on. So... Uh, that's how it works. With that being said, with all the training that you go through, when I see the pilots, they do the walkthrough before you actually fly the plane and you guys can ground it for, for any reason. You see something you don't like. Obviously, the engineers are the ones who know the plane inside and outside. Yeah, for sure. When you walk around the plane, how do you, like, when you look at the structure of the plane on the outside of the plane? Yeah. How do you look for something that is out of the ordinary? Say a crack in the in the shell or something. Like how how yeah. do you know that? Like what if it's not so obvious? Absolutely. So so first of all, before we even do our walk around, so every time the aeroplane arrives on stand, our engineers do exactly what you just said. They they scrutinise the aeroplane, and yes, they know exactly. They'll know what that rivet or that bolt sticking out is. Okay. Is what you know what it's for and stuff. And if it was slightly misaligned, et cetera. Yeah, so so they first of all scrutinize it and they will obviously write it up, you know, and, and it would have to be inspected or changed if there was something adrift. And then it's also our responsibility. So when a captain signs for the aeroplane to take it, depending if the captain is is flying that day, then uh, the co-pilot will do the walk around. And if the co-pilot's flying, the captain will do the walk around. So that's how we, we take it in turns. We're obviously trained, you know, part of our, our training is is to obviously know the external structure. So you, in our case, we're looking for obvious things. So as you say, we're just looking at the main structure, but there's lots of ports and vents and nodes on the aeroplane that measure certain things. So our eyes hone into on those important things that we, we know. So like when we look at the landing gear as well, so you can see literally just where the brake wear indicators are, you know, small things like that. You're looking for signs of um, probably a bit like when you look at your car and you see some fluid dripping underneath the car. You'll want to you'll want to investigate it and go, "Why is that?" So well, if we the, the difference like, is, we'll just be like, "Ah, you're getting in it, won't you?" Exactly. That's, there is that's none the, of that. There can't be yeah. none of that. <laughs> exactly. And when when Paul and I uh, we did our courses where people come along, you know, I think I think I said it on the last one. I said, you know, who drove here today and. A hundred people put up their hand and I go, well, did you put the car up on a ramp and look at every single hydraulic line and brake line? Of course, the answer is no. And I said, well, why? Why did you? Because every time we go flying, that's exactly what happened. So, um, yeah, so it would be obvious if there was something externally wrong with the aeroplane. It's, it's, it's quite a big strat. And because they're quite smooth, you know, as structures, you, you would notice something if something was adrift, yeah, for sure. 
Yeah. So the, the other thing is too, you know, as you do your job and you know, you, you do get, comp- there, there is no complacency. So it has to be, that's what I mean. So it has to be like that. That's like one of the one professions where complacency isn't an option. No, no, for sure. And and, and when you sign off on it, you, you, that thought is now out of your mind. You're like, I'm going, you know, I'm going to where I need to go. And you, you're not thinking about that again, that that, that's done. No, no, that's, that's exactly it. And uh, as I said as well, you know, I think that was the last point, you know, just, if, if everyone remembers that, you know, there are humans actually operating the aeroplane and, and they have, you know, home lives and stuff and they live like normal human beings and they, they're not some adrenaline junkies that just want to go and, and have fun. So, you know, when, you, when you're literally signing the aeroplane, you, you are confident in your mind that this aeroplane is absolutely within its safety limits to, to go flying. But mentally, and, uh, how, how, mentally, how hard is it to to realize the the gravity having all of those people you know relying on you i mean it, it, does it does it get i mean it could you know you, someone would say wow i have you know 200 people 300 people i mean does it ever i mean i guess does it weigh on you at, at any time it's it's really it's really funny you say that because i remember when i first flew the uh, the 747 i i got my command on the 747 i was I was only 33 and I was very lucky to, to, to and we used to fly a, a certain configuration. It had 501 people on board. And I remember the first time I ever thought about it that I saw that and it scared me. So I thought I'm never going to think about it. So, so the, the way that you actually think about it, you, you, it's really hard to describe when you're in the flight deck, you, because you look after yourself, everybody's coming with you. If, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So you, you don't think about the enormity of, wow, there's, there's 200 feet of aeroplane behind me with 500 people just about to have a gin and tonic and, and look forward to their holiday. And yeah, it's just because you look after yourself. Yeah, everybody comes with you. So it's, it's, a, really, um, it's a really easy way of handling that, that uh, pressure, if you like. You, you, you don't consider it a, a pressure, if, if that makes any sense. Oh, yeah. It, it, because, it, it, you, because you so want to go home to, to you know, your normal life and, and stuff. It's kind of easy in that, in that way. Yeah, don't get me wrong though. After 32, I still go, you know, sometimes you get out of the toilet and just go, wow, look at all these people. They're, they're sleeping, they're drinking, they're eating. And I just go, that's cool, you know? I'll be the one, I'll be the one with my eyes awake though. Yeah, yeah. Focusing exactly. on the front of the plane. Yeah, exactly. Hopefully Although so. last time, you know what? I did, uh, I did relax in the seat and I, I, I might have fallen asleep for a few minutes. <laughs> It was actually pretty nice, you know, to relax oh, in the airplane cool. and enjoy it. I, I actually did enjoy it. And, uh, you know, getting all these, this information from from you guys and, and everything, it, it does make people feel a lot better. And you realize how capable the people are. And you just, you know, let those people do their jobs and you're going to be fine, you know. And it's just uh, it's a good feeling, you know. Oh, it's it's like I said, it's such a shame, you know, with just the way the world has has sort of turned in our industry since nine eleven is because because you're now just listening to a voice behind a you know an armor plated door. It is kind of robotic now, and it's the uh, the personalization of, of you know travel. Years ago was was a very glamorous form of travel, and it was uh, you know years ago the crew would have come out and spoken to you know while the you know the, the service was going on, and we did as well. I remember. Obviously, first class was behind the flight. They don't used to go out and speak to the passengers because that's the way it was, and it was a really, it was a lovely time, you know, to to share that because it, you know we, we are well aware it's it's kind of a very unusual 
job and um it's just nice to share it but you know i can't stand it because i started flying before 9-11 i really really appreciate you know what it was like yeah but of course i fly with guys and girls now that have never had that experience they don't know what it was like to fly around with the, with the flight deck door open and stuff you know we didn't even have doors in the early days there were just curtains and, and you know and so if the curtain was open there was someone was going to the toilet they just wander in you know just <laughs> do you mind if i sit no <laughs> <laughs> so when 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 you guys actually on a longer flight if you guys leave the cockpit they they actually block the door correct yes that's right yeah um, they block it with the carts is that right yes yeah depending on the configuration of where the toilets are and and, and stuff on the airplane but that's exactly it yeah yeah i mean necessary but it, it's a real it's unfortunate shame. yeah it is it is it's um, one of those things we have to kind of accept and uh, and move on but but listen in the name of safety you know it's uh yeah exactly there's no compromises there but, yeah. these are the things we have to do so to keep us yeah. all uh you know safe and you know even now the whole process with the security has gotten a lot better and you know yeah. we, we were we were in and out of security you know i was telling paul it, it only took about 20 minutes but we flew out of a bigger oh. airport this time so oh okay um, I had all my uh, my material ready when I walked into the. Oh, airport. cool! Yeah. I had everything ready, so it was it was it was nice. But everyone has adapted to all of that, so it makes it it makes you feel a little better. You know, I remember flying back 10, 15 years ago. You know, right at a few years after nine eleven, it was yeah. really a really different process. So it definitely has gotten a little better. You know, for sure, it was really tense, wasn't it, for a while? And uh, yeah, yeah, they. I mean, they were learning as well, weren't they? The airports, all the security stuff. So they were learning, you know, how how can we do this nicely, but we have to do it, you know, deliberately. So um, it, it's just one of those things now. Unfortunately, it does make the day a lot longer, though. You know, you've got to arrive at the air, airport, you know, hours ahead. Is, is gone are the days where you could sprint up to the the check in desk and say, "I'm late. I'm sorry." Yeah, that was one of the things yeah. that I had a problem with all the uh, all the time beforehand, all the anticipatory time, you know sitting there waiting you know and i i had always said that if i was able to just walk onto the airplane i would be fine so you know that's why me gathering all this information uh, speaking yeah, to you guys yeah. you know and having all this information the more for me the more i can have the better some people do not want to hear all the technical stuff you know what i mean so right yeah yeah. That's why, you know, me speaking to a pilot only helps me rationalize what's happening, you know, because I just can't rationalize the the whole physics of it. But now that I've learned about it, it, it makes sense that it is safe and that the yes, know, it's not so it's not that out of the realm for it to be happening. You know what I mean? No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you think about, you know, again, in the modern world, you know, lawyers and solicitors and mitigation and all sorts of things, you think about just that solely about, you know, if if this was remotely proven to be unsafe in any area of the industry, you know, that they just, you know, lawyers would have a field day if it, if it, if it wasn't. So you can imagine the insurance that's involved in just allowing an airline to operate to send hundreds of airplanes into the sky every day can you can you imagine you know what, what goes on in the background you know nothing to do with the actual flying itself the um, you know the insurance premiums that that people have to pay in order to to allow this to to operate it, yeah. it is yeah absolutely it's a proven a proven way of transport yeah. 
It is, and it's going to get me over to England to see a Premier League football game, and oh, good man. Uh, to Italy. I, I that's what that's my goal if to uh, get to England because I want to see a Premier League game. I want to go to Old Trafford. So oh, you're a Man United man. Oh, yeah, but it, that that's a bit like being a Yankees fan, though. You know, yeah. like it's, it's kind of you know you know how that is. Like that's like saying you're a Yankee fan. It, it's easy to be. A Man United exactly. fan, you know, even though they exactly. haven't been that, uh, as good the last few years, but you know. <laughs> most of the Man United fans don't even live in Manchester. You know, they're, they're, they're it's, it's quite yeah. funny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's so the, be careful that, what you say about Man United. My dad's a Man United fan, so they, oh, there you <laughs> go. Yeah. So that's I'm the whole. Uh, that's the whole reason that uh, I've gotten into this whole thing because uh, the, the the fear of flying was holding me back. And uh, oh, I can imagine. So now, yeah. uh, now I'll, I'll just buy a ticket on Virgin Atlantic and ask for Captain <laughs> Steve, and I'll come right over, right over to uh, England. Well, I tell you what, you know, the nearer the time you, whenever you get to that stage, let let me know as far as in advance as you can, and uh, you know we can request flights. So not guaranteed, but I could certainly try and get on that one too. Yeah, this 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 would be amazing. Oh, cool! <laughs> great. Well, I have to say thank you ever so much for that, Michael. Those were great questions. Uh, there were some really, um, temp- yeah, I've heard variations of those before. Of course, we've been doing this a long time, but the way you answered that was brilliant. That was, and I like to see Steve, like to see Steve work a bit. He's he's this calm <laughs> all the time. You calm. can't. You Come. can't get him. You, whatever you ask, they've they th- they thought about it, and so hopefully you got a sense of that today. You cannot rattle. You cannot rattle this man. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> that was amazing, but no, those were great comedy. questions. Oh, Michael, real well, calm. real real privilege to uh, speak to someone of uh, you know that 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 has so much experience, and you guys are helping. And I told Paul this a you know, hundred times. I I know how bad the fear is and how much it can hold you back. And to hear you guys so freely give the information, and and you generally you genuinely seem like you care about the people and you want them to fly and see different places. I I thank you so much because it in 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 a little short amount of time I've been doing this. I I drew a line in the sand and said I can't let this happen anymore. You guys have helped me immensely. Wow. Well, well, cool. Brilliant, mate. I mean, honestly, the, I always say to people, if you get to that point where you go, you go enough's enough, you know, that 60% of it, you know, showing up. So the amount of no pe- people that don't show up for courses be amazed because they thought they were ready, but they weren't. And, and mm. actually, I say that showing up, doing a bit, little bits every day like you're doing, and find out the questions and the answers to the questions that you've got, like you're doing. You're on a great. I mean, we want to get you over for December. We're talking. There's talk of December, isn't there? Let's talk oh, about it. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. And then you can come over. We'll we'll buy you a beer, and even really? a kebab, won't we? Just even. Get <laughs> yeah. Right in the Live middle. Live the, the dream. Thank you. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> That's right in the middle of the soccer season too. So yeah. Yes, it yeah. is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know Man Man City's taking it on Championship Sunday today. Oh, exactly. Yeah. I know. Yeah. 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 Right, so. Michael. Thank you very much, mate, and thank you, Steve. Absolutely oh, brilliant. Great stuff that guys. was.